I'd like to open with Philippians 3.17 and Philippians 4.9. It says, <clears throat> Paul speaking, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe, and observe those, probably talking of Timothy and Epaphrodites, who walk according to the pattern you have in us. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. In these excerpts uh, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, the church at Philippi, he's enjoining them to look at him as an example of how to live and walk the Christian life. He says, look at me and how I walk and how I live. Is Paul being arrogant? No, he's, he's being loving. He had a loving relationship with the Philippians church. He founded that church. And there's a, he has a special love and a special bond with that church. He loved them and they loved him. This letter to the Philippians is not a, a letter of reprimand like we see with the Corinthians or, or of doctrine, but of love and encouragement. He wanted them to prosper and grow in, grow in Christ. And he encouraged them to adopt his ways, the way he walked, and his attitudes, things he had learned in his pursuit of Christ over the years. Now that said, if, uh, if looking at Paul and his life would benefit the church at Philippi, I would assume that it would also benefit us if we observed how Paul walked and how how he lived. But uh, before we commit ourselves uh, too deeply, and unless Paul is a role model in following Christ, it would probably behoove us to take a, take a closer look at, at Paul and how he lived his life. After all, I heard this guy change his name somewhere along the line, and he'd been in prison a lot, so it's probably best we take a take a look at him. And in fact, he was writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. So I'd like to take a, take a look to start out with here, uh, a look at, uh, let's, take, let's call it his resume. What, what was Paul's, Paul's resume? He was born a Jew in Cilicia, uh, which is now southern part of Turkey, probably sometime after Christ was born. He was born a Roman citizen. He received a first-class Jewish education under the, under the best teachers of the time. He was a Pharisee, strong Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he spent most of his time persecuting the, uh, the early converts to Christ with great passion. Those Jewish converts, he just, uh, he just tore them up. Along the road to Damascus one day to put some people in prison, he, somebody reached down, the Lord Jesus Christ reached down and miraculously saved Paul. He was converted to Christianity, and in the book of Galatians we read that uh, he received his, uh, the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. He spent some time alone by himself, a couple of years, and, and learned from Jesus himself. And he became, if he was a zealous uh, persecutor of uh, Christians, he became a more zealous uh, follower of Christ. 
And he was now going by Paul as opposed to Saul. And as you might expect, the Jews of the, the Jewish leaders of the time hated Paul with a passion. Now, before we go further in Paul's interesting uh, resume here, I'm beginning to think that uh, did this guy, Paul, have any experiences uh, in his resume that might, might benefit me, things that, uh, things that I deal with? Did he have any experience in those things, like trials? You know, if you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you've, you, know, you quickly learn that we're not uh, immune from trials and problems, that, that they tend to find us. And uh, I'd be interested to see what Paul had to say. How did, how did he deal with these things? And if we look in 2 Corinthians 11, he has a few things in his uh, resume concerning that. I'm going to read in, beginning in verse 23, if I, can, if I can get there. There we go. He had just got through going through his uh, education and that sort of thing, and speaking to the Corinthians. He says, are these guys Hebrews? He, he says, yeah, so am I. Are they Israelites? Yeah, I am too. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak of insane. I more so, far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Spent a day in the night in the deep. And I've, <clears throat> I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure, and apart from these external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. I guess, Paul, uh, we can say he, he fills in the experience box on the, on the resume. He has, if there was a type of trial to be had, he had it. And he did this for over 30 years, uh, ministering for Christ through thick and thin. And in his letter to the Philippians, in Philippians 4.11, he adds this to the resume. Having been, through all this, having been through all this stuff, he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Humble means prosperity, hung, hungry, abundance. I've learned the secret to how to be content through it through it all. And he says in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ, or literally it's in Christ, who strengthens me. Now there's one more thing before making a, if we want to make a commitment to following Paul's example. It'd be good to know how he finished. You know, a lot of, a lot of people start out uh, well and don't end so well. How did Paul end? You know, after 
four missionary journeys stretching out over 30 years and punctuated by all the trials and imprisonments we previously mentioned. His body full of scars that he bore in following Christ. He writes his final letters. You can find his the final epistle that he wrote. He wrote a letter to Timothy, his beloved Timothy, in 2 Timothy verses 4 through 6 and 8. This is what Paul had to say at the end of his ministry. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Paul would eventually be, uh, not long after this, I don't know how long after, he was executed by Nero. And it would seem that Paul had uh, knew about it at this time, whether it was by revelation or if it were to get back to him. But he went on to say, knowing this, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who has loved his appearing. So that's uh, the end of Paul's one-page resume that I'll use today. And having read his resume, I'd have to say that Paul's a good example. We, We could do well if we could follow in Paul's example. Not just his words, but more importantly, his deeds. Now, why do I get, why do I say all this? Well, it's this is an introduction to what may be a few messages uh, that I have over the next few months here and there, from time to time, based on Paul's teaching and his experiences, primarily from the books of Ephesians and Acts. That could change. We'll, we'll see, but that's the way I see it uh, right now. So if you're with, with me through all of that, you probably won't have to endure that. Uh, <clears throat> the next time we'll just kind of pick it up and go on to Paul's next experience. But today I'd like to t- talk about a time in Paul's life deep into his ministry. Uh, I've been ministering for a long time at this point. And the Jews have managed to get Paul in prison using false accusations. Paul has been imprisoned at this time a couple of years in Caesarea. The Romans trying to figure out what to to do with him. Didn't slow Paul down. He said said in Philippians 3, he says, you know what, this time in prison, you know, he says, this has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Because he'd witnessed all the guards, and uh, he had many converts, and he had a great—he had developed a great following in prison. But two years had gone by. Uh, Festus had re- replaced Felix as the Roman governor in Judea, and Festus wanted to kind of clean the slate, get this Paul character out of his hair, and at the same time, he could do a favor to the Jews that he was uh, ruling over, and. Uh, and see if he could curry some favor with them. And they were continually looking and scheming for ways to still to kill, kill Paul. So Festus asked Paul, he said, hey, Paul, how would you, uh, what would you feel about if we sent you back to Jerusalem and you stood trial there in front of your own people in Jerusalem? Uh, the, Jews, uh, the Jews' plan was he would never see Jerusalem. He would, they would... Uh, 
take care of him long before he got there. Paul smelled a rat, and he says, nah, he says, I don't, th- I don't think so. He says, as a matter of fact, uh, I appeal to Caesar. Paul was a Roman governor. The Romans had very strict rules and laws as to how they treated their citizens. He appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he would go. So, so Paul now had to be taken to Rome to stand before Caesar. Caesar wasn't about to come down to Caesarea to see Paul, so they had to f- figure a way to get him to get him to Rome, which was uh, going to take a long and dangerous journey uh, by boat across the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the backdrop for today's, uh, today's teaching about uh, from uh, th- through Paul. I'd like to use Paul's teaching and experiences today to address what actions should we or could we take when faced with a trial. What should, we be, what should we be doing? When the, one of the storms of life comes our way, what actions should we take as Christians? And I'm going to pick it up in Acts 27, where we find Paul on a, on a large ship hauling wheat from Alexandria to Rome. And they had loaded Paul and a bunch of other prisoners along with their guards onto this uh, freighter. And there was, a, I don't know, when's a boat become a ship? But this thing was pretty big because they had 276 passengers on this, on this thing, although it was primarily a, a freighter. So we're going to pick it up in Acts 27, verse 9, and we'll see the the scene here. They're on the boat. The seas are stormy. Uh, It's not a good time of year to be sailing. They're they're setting off in the fall, and the weather is starting to to change. Uh, This captain's got a load of wheat on his boat, and he doesn't get paid until he gets there, so he's, he's going no matter what. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, and Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage and the cargo of this ship, I, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. I don't think this was a thus saith the Lord uh, that Paul had. He says, I perceive this. Nobody eventually lost their lives, so I assume this was, Paul could see that it wasn't a good idea to be sailing, and that was his opinion at the time. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship and by what was being, than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor in Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Moderate south wind came up, and supposing they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before a very long, <clears throat> but before very long rushed down from the land, a violent wind called Iquiquilo, or Northeaster. And when the ship was caught in it, they could not face the wind, but gave way to it, and we let ourselves be driven along and running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. 
<clears throat> we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they'd hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, fearing that they might run aground in the shallows of Syrtis <clears throat> and let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. And the next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, and from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you should have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred the damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there should be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God, and that will turn out exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. So they had, Paul had some good news for him. He says, oh, nobody's going to lose their life, but the bad news is we're going to crash. The boat's going to eventually crash on some island. As an aside, it's interesting to see by this time, Paul, as a prisoner, had pretty much uh, uh, had a lot, lot to say on this ship. So what do we have here? We got, uh, we got a dire situation. We got an overloaded, uh, beat-up old freighter out somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, the Mediterranean's no Lake Winnipesaukee. It's about, uh, you know, it's almost a million square miles of, uh, of sea. It's uh, almost a thousand miles wide at some, at some point. So it's a, it's, a big, it's a big piece of water. They hadn't seen the sun or the stars for many days in this storm, and that's the only way they had to navigate. Uh, compasses were probably another thousand years in the future, and so they didn't know where they were. The seas were building, and there was too much wind, and, and the seas were too high to sail. If they left the sails up, the sails had been shredded or the mast would have come down. So what did they do? What's the captain do? In Acts 27, 17, 17 through 19, we're going to list three things that the captain did here. <clears throat> First thing, it says, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. Now, what, what the heck does that mean? This was, this was a procedure where they would, they would take and wrap these big cables or ropes around around the body of the ship to stiffen it and, and strengthen it when there was a big storm coming. And some of these old freighters, the, they used to call them floating coffins because they, they, the, they needed these things just to hold together. And it's called frapping. Don't ask me why they call it frapping, but that's, you, you frap the boat, that's when you wrap these cables around to stiffen it up and strengthen the boat before the storm comes. The second thing they did, and Verse 17, it says, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. Now, uh, a sea anchor isn't an anchor that goes down, a big hunk of metal that goes down and hooks on, hooks on the bottom. A sea anchor is more like a, you could equate it to a par an underwater parachute. 
It's something you, it's, it's something you, you hook onto the end of a rope, you throw it over the side, you tie the front to the bow of the boat, and the drag of the, the, drag of the sea anchor, this parachute, if you will, will turn, turn the boat so the bow of the boat is facing, facing the waves rather than just wallow in the, in the trough of the waves and eventually sink. So this is, that's, that's what the purpose of the sea anchor is. And I've been in boats where we've used sea anchors fishing just to keep the boat uh, oriented when you're drifting. So that's the only thing the captain could do at that point. you throw out the sea anchor. And the last thing they did in verses uh, 18 and 19, they started throwing stuff overboard. Anything, anything that was heavy, anything they didn't need, they started tossing that stuff overboard. Some of the wheat that was on the deck, they tossed that over any extra anchors or any, anything that weighed anything, they threw it over so the give the boat would be more buoyant. So I'd like to take, uh, having said all that, I'd like to take these three actions of this specific trial and try, try I'll attempt to use them to illustrate maybe some actions we should take in time of trial. So what's the first thing the captain did? He, in anticipation of the storm, he frapped, he frapped the boat in anticipation of the trial. He didn't wait till the waves were lapping over the side. He did this, he did this ahead of time. So what's the first thing we should do? We should frap ourselves, strengthen ourselves in the Lord before you, you see a trial coming, you don't wait until you're in the middle of it to start seeking the Lord. So the time to do it is uh, at the beginning. In Philippians 4.1, 4, Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. So we want to we be able to stand firm, strengthen ourselves in the Lord. In Philippians 4, 4 through 9, here's some things you can do to, to frap your boat in time before the trial comes. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I always I will say rejoice. Remember, Paul's writing this in prison. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do that, and the peace of God, which surpassing all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen and we practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, Paul instructs the Ephesians how to prepare themselves against struggles against the devil. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up 
the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Be strong in the Lord. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Take up the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Do all this before the storm hits, so you can, when it does, you can stand firm and praying at all times. So this is what we do before the storm comes. Before the waves are rolling over the side, you want to be prepared. Strengthen, strengthen, if you're the boat, strengthen the boat. Now the second thing we talked about is what? You let down the sea anchor. Once, once the storm, <clears throat> excuse me, once the storm is going at full fury and the captain has to drop the sails, he doesn't have a lot of options. <clears throat> he can't sail, he doesn't have, he doesn't have, obviously he doesn't have a motor, he can't row, he can't row this thing. Uh, the boat's spinning broadside and into the waves. So he's got two choices. He can do nothing. He can sit there and let the boat swamp and go down, or else he could go to his only hope is go to his sea anchor and throw his sea anchor over. Throws the sea anchor out on a long rope and secures it to the bow. Once he does that, the sea anchor will slowly sink. The drag will start to and tighten the rope, and eventually the rope will be tight against the, the drag of the sea anchor, and the boat will turn around and face the waves. And then it says they would just let the, <clears throat> let the waves do their thing. They'll continue to drive you, but your bow will be facing the waves, and you'll be able to ride through the storm. The sea anchor doesn't stop the storm, but it allows you to ride through the storm. So what's that have to do with us? Well, we're the boat. In this analogy, we're the boat or we're in the boat. The sea anchor is God, or Christ. And the rope is our faith in Christ, or the sea anchor. All the boats of that day had to carry the sea anchor on board. Every believer has Christ within. And like the sea anchor is there waiting to be called upon if it's needed, so Christ dwells within us and is ready to be called upon when we need him. Now the sea anchor is of no avail if the captain chooses not to use it. It doesn't do him any good. The boat's going to flounder and sink and the sea anchor is worthless as long as it's sitting in the boat. It's only of value as if it's used. And so it is with us when the storm comes. We should turn the matter over to God, our sea anchor. Turn it to him. Engage, engage him. And Philippians 6 that we read, Paul says to take up the full armor of God. Take up the shield of faith. There's, a, there's an action to take in time of trials. 
And our action isn't to try to start rowing the boat, so to speak, or putting up the sails. No, it's time to turn, turn it over to God. Find the anchor, tie it to the end of the rope, tie the other end of the bow, and toss it over and let it do its job. The role that you have once you engage Christ in your trial is just make sure you hang on to your end of the rope. Keep that rope tied securely to the boat. It won't stop the storm, but you'll be able to ride it through. In Psalm 23, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. You have to go, sometimes you have to go through the trial. You know, as full of the Spirit as Paul was, and as powerful a ministry as he had, God allowed him to go through these trials. He didn't just pray every time that uh, they were going to stone him or they were going to beat him or something. He wouldn't just pray and everything would stop and go away and everything would be better. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul addressed his his thorn in the flesh. And he says, concerning this, he says, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. But the Lord denied his request because he said it was for your benefit, Paul. I'm not going to do what you're asking because it's for your benefit. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. You know, God, God always has a reason when he allows trials to persist. And that doesn't mean we stop praying. Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And he also said, keep praying. Pray always. <coughs> Excuse me. When you're praying and giving thanks, you're still you're engaging with God. You're keeping, you're keeping your hand on the rope. You're keeping engaged with God. You can't give up. You know, if you were in a boat in that storm and you looked out off the bow, you, you couldn't see the sea anchor. It's not in sight. It's not flying up in the air somewhere. It's, un, it's under the water, a few feet under the water. However, there's evidence of its presence. Even though you can't see it working, you know it's working. The bow is pointed into the wind and the rope is tight. The tight rope is evidence that the sea anchor is out there doing its job. What do we say the rope was? The rope is your faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That tight rope, your faith, is evidence that God, the sea anchor, is out there doing his job. As long as you've got faith, he's doing his job. That rope, rope will be tight. Now, we've talked about frapping the boat. We talked about the sea anchor, and what's the last thing the captain did? He started tossing stuff overboard. Okay, men, just throw it all out. You know, and sometimes, like a floundering boat, we often find ourselves weighed down with excess stuff in our minds and lives that become more problematic when we find ourselves in a trial. Now, Paul addresses uh, some of that in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 
5 through 9, here's an example of some of the stuff that uh, we should be tossing over the side here. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, toss them over the side. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. That's obvious stuff that we ought to throw over the side, and we ought to, we ought to do it. Paul said to do it. We ought to do it if you're carrying any of those things. And it's not just that type of stuff, but it's also the cares of everyday life. Paul says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Have faith. So getting, getting rid of anything that's weighing you down is going to help your boat get through the, through the trial. Anything that hinders your relation with Christ and any of, that, any of that stuff you're holding on to. You know you can only hold so many things in your, in your hands at a time. You've got to be holding on to that rope. You can't be holding on to this junk and try to hold on to the, keep a tight hold on the rope at the same time. You know, that's, I think that's about all that Paul has to teach us today. Three things to do. Three things to do in the time of trial. Number one, frap your boat. Two, put your trust in the sea anchor, Jesus Christ. And get rid of all that junk that's weighing you down. Can you say amen? Amen. amen.